0: Hey everyone, welcome back to SEL Convergence. You just heard from us recently about diversity and equity, and we're back for more,
1: featuring the same cast of characters as our previous episode. And I'm really excited to dig a little bit deeper into the conversation that we started
0: last time. So I'm gonna stop talking and we're gonna get to it. Hey Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you do to, Make this podcast happen. We have Krista and Jamila back with us again. My friends, thank you so much for joining us in this really essential conversation. Um, Jamila may not be aware, Krista is aware because Mike and Krista helped me these past three days. We just had the absolute privilege of working with 60 young people, middle school and high school, in a social emotional learning retreat. And uh, it was all virtual. And uh, Chris on the second day really dug very deeply into diversity and equity with these young, young leaders and young adults. And I was so inspired, inspired by their caring, uh, inspired by their desire to want to dig deeply into the topics that we talked about in our first session, we will continue to talk about today. So the question I have for you, my friends, to st- start us off, what do we need to do to help schools? Help schools grow in their efforts to create anti-bias, anti-racist, and culturally responsive teaching. I know that's a lot. We can we can chunk it down. Let's. What do we need to do to help schools create an environment that is anti-bias and anti-racist?
1: That is a huge one right there. Um, I think one of the things for me looking at that term, A-bar, that you hear people say, anti-bias, anti-racist, is that it does go beyond race and ethnicity. So we're also looking at gender and biological sex. We're looking at religion, language diversity, um, cultural diversity. And so um, understanding that it's not only deep work, but it's very vast work as well.
2: And I would say just even going back to what something I said on, um, on part one, it starts at the top. Like We can't, we can't even begin to make an impact with uh, the teachers and the students until the district administrators, the building administrators, until they all come on board as well and do that work for themselves. So when you say where does it to, to make them successful, I think it starts with, Um, having professional development at that level first. Every summer, usually districts will have something called um, an administrative retreat. And I think that's actually where I think it's a retreat that it starts at the retreat, but it's, it's work that would then move on ahead. And it's something during all of their administrative meetings throughout the school year. That's where that's the work that needs to be done. And then after a year, I would say, then start bringing on the um, the faculty and staff building wide.
0: Jamila, I love that thought. I, I love that process you're recommending to us. I know Chris and I have had the privilege of doing some board retreats this year, last year, uh, on this topic and SEL in general. And I know we're scheduled for some more in, in early August. And as you were speaking, Jamila, Uh, The whole idea of administrative retreats absolutely uh, resonates with me. But I was also thinking of uh, my belief is we need to get to school boards as well. Yep, we absolutely need to get to school boards. And and as as listening to both of you. It takes courageous leaders right now. It takes courage. to, it takes courage to address SEL. It takes courage to, direct, to address diversity and equity. And in my mind, it's like, well, of course we're going to do this, but I know my mind's not necessarily the average mind. Uh, what What are your thoughts?
1: I if if I can add in here, I think that there's two pieces I'm thinking about as I'm hearing both of you speak. And the first part is um, it also we need to look within to each of us. And I'm a huge advocate of that because I feel that many times when we're doing this work the first instinct is well how do i get this person to change how do i get this person to see things differently and what we need to be doing is holding the mirror up to ourselves that's within our direct locus of control we also know that we are all as humans biased mm. and it's a it's a really difficult thing to, to process and to understand, especially as teachers, because we're in a position where we care for people so much that we want to look at ourselves as good people who would never implicitly or intentionally hurt anybody. But we need we need to have an understanding that we've been socialized for so many years in a certain way in society that we can't always look to how are we going to change this person? We need to look at how do we change ourselves and do a deep examination there and then how do we two, hold each other accountable for that? So even as Jamila was saying, at that administrator level, at the school board level, how are we holding each other accountable for when we do mess up? And we will inevitably mess up because we're human and we're not perfect. Um, I know that specifically in our area, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a number of school districts who are are struggling with, and you mentioned school board members, And not having an understanding of the way that cultural competency works and understanding our biases and being able to acknowledge them to do what's right for kids. And so knowing that the school board and the administrators need to work together and hold each other accountable for for their work and keep the students at the heart of that work.
2: I absolutely agree. And Tom, yes, as I was talking, I was thinking about, like, it should be at the school board level. And actually, it should be something that's put out there. School boards are elected. um, And it may be put out there that this is the expectation of if you, you are voted in, you're elected to the school board, this is the expectation. And so if you can't, if you're unwilling to do the work, then maybe you should be unwilling to run.
0: So Jamila, that's really powerful here. So stating as a school district, here are the expectations of board members. And if you're not able to to accommodate that or meet that, then you shouldn't run. That puts me in mind of of moving against systemic racism. So, So systemic racism is... Has been part of our policies. It's been part of our policies in this nation uh, since before we were a nation, <laughs> and and it has grown and it continues to grow. So, Jamila, I love what you're recommending here, uh, and I'm not exactly sure how we do that, but I, I'd love to speak to some some uh, colleagues. Uh, certainly at the board level, the administrative level, but even possibly at the state level, how do we create those expectations? And if any listeners are, are, are with us at this point in time and you have feedback on that, let, let uh, us know, let Mike and I know at SEL Convergence because I'd like to explore that further. Jamila, that's, that's fantastic. Krista, uh, I, wanna, I want you both to comment on this. You mentioned looking at yourself first, and I I love that, and also social emotional learning tells us that, self-awareness has to come first, I've got to look at myself, and and that reflection, so how, I'm not, I, I have my methods, but I want to hear from both of you first, how do I educate myself in diversity and equity, I'm an educational leader, I'm a superintendent, I'm a principal, I'm a board member, how do I educate myself? Because Jamila told us clearly, I don't want to have this in the lives of my faculty until I have some expertise in this, until I have some sensitivity and awareness in this. So, what what would what are some recommendations from both of you?
2: Well, not to put a plug out there for for you guys, but you do professional development, am I right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's the first step. I think that as um a district administrator what that they would um need to look out to see what's available to them um professional development wise to help in that whole process of uh becoming more aware. When you're when you've been diagnosed with something, you seek out mm. the different treatments. Yes.
0: That's a beautiful image. I love
1: that. When I was, I was listening to a panel of speakers from Massachusetts ASCD and one of the men there was speaking and he said he has a difficult time when people who are wanting to learn, specifically white people, will say, tell me what to do. And he said, I can't tell you as a black man what to do. This is not my, quote, illness. You need to figure this out. Um, I can tell you what I see and what I feel, and on your end, validate my experiences, which Jamila, you and I've talked about that a lot. Um, and that's part of our full value contract and honoring other people's truths. But this is work that any marginalized, any non-marginalized community needs to figure out. So as a white person, I need to do the work. As a man, We need you to step up and to do some of the work. I had a conversation with my fiance a number of years ago, telling him things that I innately do as a woman to protect myself. If I'm walking to my car at night, I have my keys in my hand. I always check my back seat before I get in my car. When I'm home by myself, I rarely ever leave the windows open while I'm sleeping because I'm On a first floor. And he's like, You do all of that? I had no idea. So we need to listen to one another. And again, moving beyond race, um, languages, and gender. And I think this has a good place here too, for if we want to know what's happening in the system, we need to get everybody's voice. And Mm so I'm kind of jumping around here, but we need to ask the students about their experiences and listen to them and act on that and validate their experiences. And linking it to where I was at before, I think that we need to find accountability partners who help us learn and grow. Um, not every book, not every podcaster, not every speaker is going to be for us, but we need to find the people who care about us enough to challenge us to grow. And that Tell we us, well,
0: forgive me for interrupt. Tell us more about accountability partners.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. I have a group of friends who specifically are white educators who are interested in diversity and equity work and we meet and we talk about our role and how we help and we talk through issues where, hey, I think I messed up here or this is what happened. What can I do? We can't always be, we need to figure some of this out ourselves. And then I have very dear friends like Jamila where I've done work, I've done reading, and I need her specific viewpoint. And because of the relationship and the rapport that we've established, she can tell me straight up, Krista, have you thought about it this way? Or here's been my experience, and we're accountability partners and like co-conspirators because she helps me learn and grow and see things in a different perspective that I just can't see because of my experiences.
0: Jamila, it sounds like, to me, Krista is saying, your trusting relationship, The tra- and I'm really emphasizing that word now, I think it's really important in this accountability partner concept, your trusting relationship, Krista is literally inviting you, Jamila, her trusted friend, to open up her worldview, to, op- to give her new perspectives. Would I be correct in that?
2: You're absolutely correct in it, and it's a it's a it has to be a mutual trust and a mutual vulnerability because you can someone can open up and want they they say they want your input, they want you to be honest, but I know I've been in situations where then I have given input and then it was not well received so it's a there definitely has to be that foundational trust that's there. Um, I have to trust that what I'll say. That Krista will receive.
0: Mm. So it, this is this is getting very rich. Thank you. So Jamila brings us to one of the most powerful words in my current learning process: vulnerability. Uh, I think we're all uh, big fans of Dr. Brené Brown and her work, Absolutely. her her cl- her very classic podcast, "The Power of Vulnerability," and she reminds us through her research through her very detailed sociological research vulnerability is the birthplace of human greatness yes and here we are again so i'm i'm i'm, I'm reflect as soon as i say those words i reflect on john lewis who just passed mm-hmm. what a model of vulnerability from his, from his youth as as a civil rights leader at 21 years old and 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 why was he invited to lead the student effort because he was willing to be vulnerable, literally put himself on the line knowing he was going to be beaten, knowing, and I'm not suggesting that, that any of our children or any of our colleagues should, should knowingly allow themselves to be beaten, but that vulnerability I think it goes back to what Krista called the work. I have to do the work, (laughs) you know, And, and the work, the work for me has been a deep commitment to growing, a deep commitment to being more than I was yesterday. And that involves reading and learning and, and tons and tons of experience Jamila, I keep coming back to the professional development. Professional development for school boards, for administrators, and then ultimately to staff. And and a couple things that you both were talking about, um, Jamila, trust. You know, establishing that trust that you and Krista have. And it's so incredibly important that we do that, I believe, within our professional development work. Our professional development work for me, cannot just be information. Can, can can please both of you help us and help our listeners dig a little deeper? What kinds of things should be happening to develop that trust in a PD?
1: Jamila, do you want to talk about the first time we met?
2: When I walked into a white privilege uh, breakout session. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not planned on doing. It was a last minute and I'm like, oh God, I feel like I need to unpack some stuff here.
2: I walked into that and, and I, in my head, I knew I'm like, okay, there's the likely chance that you're going to be the only person of color coming and in, going into this room. Um, and you might be the only person in the room because it wasn't based on signing up ahead of time. You just, wherever you felt that you were being led to, you know, and I walked to that, that door. Um,
1: Thank God you did.
2: I think it was more so a dialogue between the two of us the entire time. There were, there were probably maybe like five or six of us total in the room. Um, but it was just that, that, that dialogue. And you know what, like what for me that opened up right away was, Crystal, you told a story about your brother and how he was treated and how that hit home for, how that really hit home for you. Um, and it just opened up like the, the respect level, the, um, you were very, you were very vulnerable in what you shared. And I think when, when vulnerability is genuine, because there's, you have the fake vulnerable, you know, people being vulnerable in a, in a fake fashion, but when, when it's really genuine, you can sense that and, it's almost immediately like your walls can just go down. Yeah. they just, they're it, down. It,
0: it gives the listener permission.
1: Yes. And, but I think it was definitely mutual because you started opening up and sharing your experiences right away too, which deepened everything. And another one or two people started talking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not as much, but. So your willingness to be vulnerable and to engage and to share experiences in ways that you've been processing things um, really opened up a deep dialogue. And I think we only had 45 minutes or so, and it yes. was a minute session. And It was at the end of the day, and we're like, let's connect on Voxer. <laughs> and we started voxing each other, and it became an almost daily thing, and we found out Tom, I know you talk about levels of relationships. We found out that we both are dedicated to education, but Jamila works with the younger ones and the parents, and I have the older kids that I work with, and we both have teenage sons the same age who are interested in similar things, and we just kept finding we had so much more in common, and I think that's where our trust was built from, some mutual, um, not only our willingness to be vulnerable and to say, I don't. For me, I don't have the answers. I'm stuck here and I'm scared.
2: <laughs> and it's okay to say that. And I think yes. the audience, I think they'd be more receptive to just to know, like, it's, these aren't know-it-alls coming in to do a professional development because they've arrived and they're at this place, but we're working, we're in for a work in progress.
0: Yep. I love that. Uh, uh, there, I am not much of, much of a math person, but there's a math formula running through my head and it's saying vulnerability equals trust trust equals vulnerability it's a cycle that just keeps building and, and and somehow also embedded in that cycle seems like our courage builds
1: yeah to the point where i've called up jamila a couple times on box and and i wouldn't recommend don't do this to other people that you don't have a relationship <laughs> with <laughs> Because I've read of people being like, some random person called me up and just unloaded all their stuff. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but I've, I know I've called up, but i like, I screwed up. Yeah. I really think I messed something up and I need to fix it. Wow. And because, and I just need somebody, I need a friend to process this through. And because of our relationship already and because of our, our um, connection, that we had already built, Jamila was very kind and was like, you know, this is, it's not who you are, it's a thing. And and gave me ideas and her thoughts and was, was, was able to, again, open up my world for me to see things differently.
2: Something that, because I am a social worker at heart and um, in grad school, that was a part of it's like, one, you meet people where they are. Two, you believe in their capacity to be able to change, Um, but you but there has to be uh, trust established. So you really, I think the 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 professional training that I got was trying was to make people feel as comfortable as they possibly can be. Like that's just, and I think we can bring that along into education and even beyond education. But I think that that framework that that philosophy. Would if a, if a teacher went into a classroom with that thought process, what a difference the lesson will be? What a difference that experience will be for the students in that room?
0: So when, when you speak of that safety, Jamila, uh, I'm thinking emotional safety in the classroom, emotional safety in the professional development, emotional safety in the, the admin retreat. Emotional safety in the school board meeting. Um, we have something that uh, that we refer to as the full value contract, and I think Krista may have already mentioned it today, and and Krista's done a beautiful job with, with weaving that contract together with courageous conversations from Glenn Singleton. Krista, uh, I know that that's a really important part of the PD work we do. Could you share with our listeners that full value contract?
1: Sure. The um, first part of the full value contract is talking about keeping people physically safe because we know that if people are not physically safe, their brain development, they're not accessing their neocortex, their higher level thinking. Um, We also know that it's also tapping into not only the reptilian part of their brain, but also the limbic system as well. And it's tapping into a fight or flight or freeze type of um, feeling. And then the limbic system is into that belonging and how connected am I? Um, to the group. And then the second part of the full value, so we're pledging to keep people physically safe to the best of our ability. The second part is that we're pledging to keep people emotionally safe, put ups, no put downs. What that means, I feel that in terms of the courageous conversations is um, we need to lean into discomfort. And I say, notice your own physicality, like When somebody starts talking about something that I deeply disagree with, I feel it through my body. I tense up. I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. (laughs) And I want to walk away. Those are the times when we're talking about diversity and equity. Those are your moments to lean in because you have an opportunity to learn and to stretch and to grow. And it's not comfortable. It feels like Gumby, (laughs) you know, but you have to be willing to do that because you'll come out better on the other side. Um, So when you're talking with people, be aware of even nonverbals like leaning back and crossing your arms and turning away. And if you see people doing that, kind of re-engage them and say, I wanna hear your thoughts. So how are we keeping each other emotionally safe? Um, The next part of that is giving and receiving honest feedback, being able to advocate for what you need in order to to learn and um, what you're willing to give other people. And in terms of the courageous conversations, it's speaking your truth and honoring other people's truths. and I, I come back to the well, in my experience, here's how it's been. And I think that really sets up a context so that things are not generalized. Um, and so we need to be willing to say, to validate, like what Jamila's and I talk about a lot is that validate my experiences. You might not have gone through it, but I need you to believe me that this is what's happening. Because I think a lot of people in society, And that was a generalization that I just said that. I think some people are very quick to say, well, that doesn't happen here. In your experiences, you haven't seen it or felt it, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I think that um, like George Floyd's murder on TV really made people see it's happening. We were all home, we were all quarantined, we've all been attached to the news and it just put it. And so for some people that was their first awakening to what reality is like for so many people in our country. Um, And then the last piece is let it go and move forward. And what that means for me is not getting bogged down in the negative, like pick yourself up and move forward. So when I hit those learning pieces in this diversity journey where I'm like, this is ugly, I break down, I'm over, I am overwhelmed by the magnitude of it. Pick myself up and keep moving forward. I'm not going to have all the answers. It's not gonna be packaged in a bow. Um, But then I also remind myself that I have the privilege of turning away from it when I get overwhelmed. Mm. And there's a huge population of our society, whether it be by race or gender, biological, sex, religion, language, who cannot turn away. It is their everyday reality. And that reminds me that, you might wanna edit this out, Tom. The suck it up, Buttercup. <laughs> like my it, it. Um, I need to put things in perspective and understand that's my privilege to walk away, and that I need to not walk away because I need to stand with my friends who can't walk away.
0: When you when you said suck it up, Buttercup, um, that that no no no, it's important actually, really important. Thank you, because I I heard that as a boy, mm-hmm. and then I heard other things that were derogatory. And, and so we're still, we're still dealing with that. That was, that was, and and what was the phrase a a few years back? Snowflake.
1: Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) If you ever actually looked at a snowflake, they're exquisitely gorgeous and they're all individualized and and beautiful. Uh, However, I I, want to come back to a word you used as you were describing the full value contract discomfort. And you, you recommended that we lean into the discomfort. And I, I absolutely honor that. And I feel that that's really hard. It's really hard. I, I'm, I'm reflecting on something written by an author. His name is uh, Seth Gooden, G-O-D-I-N. And he talks about leadership. And he says, when you are uncomfortable, when you are uncomfortable, you have found the place where leadership is needed. And um, that resonates with me. And and for me, here we are. Many of us are uncomfortable.
2: May I
1: ask a a question? And it's actually for Jamila that I've been thinking about, but it's based on what you've said here, Tom. One of the things in in another conference that I listened to was when we talk about PD and what types of PD opportunities are we, allowing for people so that they can grow in this journey. The question that was posed was, if you're leading PD around diversity and equity, how are you ensuring that every single person has an opportunity to learn and grow? So if we're talking about race and ethnicity, what does the PD need to look like to support our BIPOC friends who are in that room? Because what is needed for some white friends who are just entering into these awarenesses is going to be different. And so PD, I think here is not going to be a one size fits all, whether are yeah. talking about race and ethnicity, or again, gender and biological sex or language or religion. And so leaning into that discomfort, we PD needs to be universal, but how do we differentiate it so that we're meeting the needs of all of our friends? And Jamila, I'm, I'm, that, I'm kind of going to be, I guess putting you on the spot with maybe asking, what do you need from PD? If it's about race and ethnicity, what will meet your needs in that room? Because I think so often you are the one who leads that PD for people because you're willing to step into that space and support other people's journeys. But what's your journey?
2: I thought about it. Um, what I would actually need, I would, I, would i think i would be more receptive if those leading the pd if it was already if there was diversity within that leadership those leading it um i would want to see a person of color but i'd also want to see a white person because i think for so long there are many um many organizations that put that on the person of color in that department or in that school or in that um, organization. And then the weight is on their shoulders and it's on their shoulders on their own to bear. And it's a, and just speaking from being in that position, I'm hesitant sometimes because I don't want people to think that I'm coming off as angry black woman or I'm the black woman that's going to tell you about yourself and what you need to change and what you need, what you need to do. I would love it. If I had others joining in with me to do a, um, a PD and then maybe I would take a particular subject matter that does not necessarily coincide with, because I'm black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think sitting in a PD will be the same thing. Like i want you know, um, I actually did, I, um, there is a, a, a New Jersey Bar, Bar Foundation does something with, um, they've done things with racism. they they offer a free, um, PD, but you have to jump on it really quickly because it fills up. I love the fact that the presenters, it's always a, a diverse mix. It's never just one. It's always a few. And they are people of color. There is, it just spans like the diversity. I'm more receptive of that because, and then it's not just lumped on one person to discuss one thing, but maybe the topic that you would expect come from a black or brown person is actually coming from the white presenter that's presenting it. Just shakes it up a bit, Mm -hmm. um, but it also makes me feel that they've completely bought into it for themselves. They believe it to be true for themselves, that they can speak on it. Mm -hmm.
1: I
0: love that idea. I love the idea of a balanced and diverse presentation team. I I absolutely, we're always striving for that.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that makes me think too, that you've reinforced is we can talk about stereotypes and validating experiences and going back to Tom's, you know, a bar work is not just race and ethnicity. It's everything. And so when we maybe, look more generalized at our professional learning, people can see how it applies to them and their experiences maybe.
0: Yeah. So as, as we try to start to bring this to close, what I'm hearing and please, please correct me, please fill in what I've missed, what I'm hearing in whatever environment we're in school board, admin, Teachers, students, we want to first build a safe environment, an emotionally safe environment. We want to do everything we can early on in that professional development to model and invite vulnerability and courageous voice so that we can begin to build a level of trust. We wanna have to the best of our ability a balanced, diverse presentation team. We wanna make, I'm envisioning a menu of options. You know, where, where are you on the journey, if you will? And what I heard from Jamila really early on in this conversation, it's not once and done. You know, I remember my friend Jamila saying, after the first year, then we come back to the second year. And I was smiling from ear to ear because that's what we need to happen. We, schools know this. Administrators study it three to five years for systemic change. Yep. And <laughs> seldom has that happened in my life, but we need to help folks get there. So where, where, what did I miss, my friends? Where, what else would you add? What else should we add?
1: The one piece that had me thinking actually way back to when you talked, you mentioned cultural competency as well. Mm. And And looking at the systemic racism piece, I think that once you have people identify and have them be open to that journey, then we need to collectively look at the system and look at the cultural competency continuum and say, where is our system at? along this continuum. And there are very, there are six very specific categories, the bottom three of which have been identified as not healthy for students to learn and grow. And we need to talk about, I think, as a system, as a community, what does it look like, sound like, feel like for groups that have been marginalized in our community? And how do we take that next step to the next level? And Tom, that does take three to six years. We worked with the school district years ago who said, well, how do we get here by the end of the year? How do you get to cultural competence? (laughs) Like they were in the cultural blindness section, which was the third of six stages. And I'm like, this is going to take a long time. But then I think it's about deconstructing the dynamics within the system that perpetuates the marginalization mm. and that's that needs to also be a focus while
2: the individual work is happening. I agree. I absolutely agree. And even in those 3 to 6 years then you have to times change. Now you have to like jump on and add on to whatever is is what the current events are what's what's going on and make the necessary tweaks. Yeah.
1: It has to ongoing. Exactly. It's not like, Oh, once a month, we're going to focus on this. I mean, if you can, do, like, we need to revisit this weekly. What are we doing? Right. What do we need to adjust on?
2: And they need to, and then analyzing curriculum, you know, like all of that, that, that comes into to play rewriting curriculum.
1: know oh. uh, <laughs> you've seen those history book ones that have been going around Twitter, like African-Americans came over from from their con their continent to help the farmers in the South. <laughs> and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no,
0: no. So as we bring this to a close and Krista, you mentioned systems in six, six categories. That's leading to I believe we have another podcast to follow here, uh, which is wonderful.
1: I'm game. You up Jamila? I'm up for
0: it. Beautiful, beautiful. So let me, learning from from both of you, what I'm hearing is we must continue the commitment. Yes. Black Lives Matter, a year from now, can't be a phrase that somebody remembers. We have to see change. We have to see change. And as you're speaking, my my old brain is saying, I hope before I'm done, we can help schools understand social-emotional learning, diversity and equity, trauma-informed care. It's not one more thing. It's not an add-on. It is the thing. It is human teaching for human learning. And as Jamila said, it must be integrated in our K-12 curriculum. And is it a massive task? Yes. But there's no more worthy task. Yes. We can't keep doing the same old, same old.
1: Our dear friend, um, Dr. Aaron Jones, said... Uh, I miss him so much. No. Uh, systems work the way they're intended to. So if you don't change a part of a system, you're going to get the same outcome. Yeah.
0: Thank you, my friends. Listeners, I'm I'm really looking forward to being with these wonderful folks again. Mike, thanks for producing. Thanks for arranging all this. Thank you, everyone.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, my dear friend, Jamila. Thank you, Krista, Tom, and Mike.